Welcome to another episode of The Dark and Dower. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. With me today is Ed Brotherton. Ed served in the United States Air Force in the mid-1990s. He served with the 60th Security Police Squadron at Travis Air Force Base, and he was a member of the Travis Air Force Base Emergency Services Team and participated in Operation Sea Signal Joint Task Force 160, providing humanitarian relief for thousands of Haitian and Cuban refugees. Since leaving the military, Ed has taken an interest in legislative history with an emphasis on the two great political philosophies, the power of the purse and the power of the sword. Today, we're going to be talking about the power of the sword. Ed, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure, man. Hey, Thanks well, you know, Ed, I've known you for a little bit, too. And um, you were part of once time. You were part of We Are Change L.A. How did you become part of that? Um, well, back in the day when we were, um, uh, there were some uh, groups going around uh, trying, just asking questions with respect to the uh, September 11th attacks, and and uh, there was a lot of uh, answers that weren't being uh, addressed, or a lot of questions that weren't being addressed, and um, so a lot of people became disillusioned, and uh, I guess you could say I was one of them, and uh, one of the groups in LA, being a big city that it is, was uh, the uh, Island of Truth uh, a group in uh, Santa Monica that would meet and they would uh, discuss things and another group was more active uh, which I ended up joining uh, uh, called VR Change Los Angeles which was based out of the New York um, chapter or the, or the New York like a um, you know mother chapter and then there's all these other chapters throughout the world uh, and I ended up joining the VR Change Los Angeles chapter at some point. Well, well, I mean, the main, uh, you were quite popular because there was an active, uh, as an active member, you were, act, you actually had a phone conversation with Congressman Brad Sherman of the 27th District in 2009. What was that about? Well, actually, I was, uh, I went to a town hall meeting where Congressman Brad Sherman was there. And um, one of the questions we were raising was regarding the collapse of the towers. And he told us that if we can get a meeting with the uh, American Institute of Architects, Los Angeles chapter, then he would agree to and, uh, whatever it is they, they determined based on the whatever presentation we gave, he would then take that into consideration. So that was the only way we can really get an end with the congressman. And uh, well, after the, he made that statement at the town hall meeting, um, they began, the, his staff members began to kind of renege on that agreement. Um, I had contacted Leslie Nathan, who was the uh, uh, the executive director for the AIA LA chapter, and uh, she had, to her credit, put together a couple of uh, meetings and put that on the agenda. And both times, though, they voted it down, so we never got a chance to have our our discussion. But uh, you know, in my in the effort though of doing that, it was a constant battle with the office because it kept uh, kind of changing the rules as to what uh, Congress Bradshawman said and i couldn't get any sort of uh confirmation from the congressman himself with respect to that until another town hall meeting where we actually brought it up to him again and he clarified it turned out the staff was incorrect so i would say right around uh obviously so when your own city and state representatives uh weren't going to listen to the evidence later on you decided to shift to the thought of the constitutional militia, would that be fair to say? Yes, because uh, I had a started a what we call an accountability campaign, and the accountability campaign was designed to actually uh, take the harness the actual seven hundred members of your change LA, and actually use it in a uh, in a fashion that would make it very difficult for any sort of uh, uh, I don't want to target, but I guess you say. Um, uh, you know, person of interest with respect to whatever it is we're trying to accomplish, whether we're trying to get a meeting, um, some sort of uh, uh, information, um, whatever it might be, it could be anything. Uh, a piece of legislation being passed, it's draconian and it needs to stop. So whoever the sponsor of the legislation is, that would be the person we would want to direct our energy to. So the idea is basically the, the program is designed to focus a massive amount of energy on one small point. So that the small point would have so much um, counterintention uh, pressed upon them that they would have no choice but to address the concerns. Um, 
rather than having all the energy of the 700 members spread across a large area where it was very ineffective because there wasn't a lot of pressure being applied to one point. And it ended, what, it ended, what, it, oh, it ended up, just to answer your question, it ended up uh, not succeeding because the participation was almost nothing, even though everybody agreed and loved the idea when it came time to actually participate, um, nobody really did. And that was very disconcerting because I realized that you can't make anybody do anything and it requires participation to be successful. But if people aren't willing to be, uh, uh, aren't willing to participate, then it's really, it's become very challenging. And when I learned about the, uh, the militia aspect of the whole scenario, then it became a game changer because then I realized that the, um, the militia concept requires participation and that would actually solve our problem. And one such person who has become a, a major influence regarding this journey has been Edwin Vieira. Could you explain who he is to our audience? Yeah, Dr. Vieira is a uh, Harvard constitutional scholar. Um, he's, um, in my opinion, one of the best legal minds on the planet. Uh, he's written extensively on um, monetary powers and disabilities, the U.S. Constitution. He wrote for the Gold Commission in Congress. He's argued several cases, uh, he briefed or argued several cases before the United States Supreme Court, uh, was successful in all, all the actions. It took 40 years for them to actually um, uh, acknowledge, uh, for him to win his, uh, one of his actions. Um, the court actually reversed itself in a decision that uh, he made, he was a part of about 40 plus years ago. And the court had uh, finally reversed itself and ruled in his favor. Um, so he's, a, he's, a, he's someone who actually focuses on constitutional issues and somebody who understands the document better than anybody I've ever seen. And uh, he's written extensively on the monetary powers um, and, and the militia provisions. So he's, he's written a 2,300 page book on the subject, if you can actually believe that uh, there's that much can be written about the subject. Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, it's pretty extensive and very, very um, footnote heavy. So it's um, quite comprehensive. Now, in Vieira does mention that certain words in the Constitution were not defined properly, such as states or treason and well-regulated militia. Um, what does he mean by non-defined words in the Constitution here? Well, he, he says quite often that the Constitution is not a dictionary. So it, right. it doesn't require, you know, it's not everyone wants to read the Constitution. And go, well, it doesn't say that this is what it means. It doesn't say that this is what it means. It doesn't define this, it doesn't define that. It's like, well, in order to understand the Constitution, you also have to read um, other things you know, in conjunction with it, such as the uh, Blackstone's Commentaries, for example, which is the, uh, the whole basis of common law. Um, and you have to understand that the founders had read these things, you know, the, uh, the Laws of Nations by Vattel, um, you know, John Locke, um, you know, uh, uh, all these different, um, and then you have to read the federal papers and the anti-federal papers to understand, you know, what these guys were really debating, or what their really counter-arguments and counter-arguments were, and, and then understanding, like, what was actually voted on, um, how the, what, what, uh, what the final outcome was with respect to the understanding of the particular provisions, um, so you have to understand all those things. Uh, militia provisions specifically, you have to understand like the historical record with respect to that going all the way back to the 1600s and then, and then following in line of uh, statutes that were passed, which is what Vieira has done. And uh, I've read quite a few of them myself, almost all of them. And um, all of them I can find anyway. And, and if they all, when you read all those in, in uh, you start to get a big understanding of a, a big picture of what the militia is, what its composition is, what its requirements are, um, and you know what it really is all about. And then you, when you read those provisions in the Constitution, there's an understanding that those that understanding and the historical record had kind of come forward and was, you know, you, you don't have to define militia because people understood what it was. Right. So that's why. So you just have to go back and understand what the statutes were saying and things like that in order to understand what the militia is.
and ascertain no, the meaning that way. Right, because there's a big misconception regarding militia, and that leads up to my question: is that um, there are there's a huge misconception when it comes to the militia aspect by the common public that they believe that groups in like Michigan or New York dressed in combat gear in the woodlands are militia, but according to the Constitution, there are no lawful militia. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, those uh, groups who uh, dress up in camo and run around the woods uh, pretending that they're uh, going to be training for a, a massive, uh, you know, massive tyranny at some point are, uh, as well as well intentioned as they may be, are disillusioned or are actually delusional um, with respect to um, uh, what they're understanding. Uh, in fact, there's a guy, uh, I'm going to name his name because he just deserves to be called out, uh, named Chris Dorsey, and he's out of Virginia, mm. and he claims to be the Virginia militia commander. So when I spoke to him on his radio program or podcast, he, uh, he was, I asked him specifically, when did the state appoint him the officer, since that is one of the requirements in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 16. And he uh, began accusing me of being a, a Jewish shill. And, uh, and I uh, ended up, uh, we abruptly ended the uh, conversation. Mm -hmm. There's this huge, like, cause, yeah, I mean, what is the, uh, let me a follow-up question here. Uh, what does the Constitution say about a militia? Well, it's, well, they're necessary for the security of the free state. So it's the only place in the Constitution where anything has been declared necessary for any purpose, which tells you what the importance of that, uh, of that provision is. Um, but you also have to read the Second Amendment in conjunction with the other militia provisions like Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15, Clause 16, Article 2, Section 2, Clause 1, and, and uh, Fifth Amendment. And um, when you read it as a, in a whole, as a whole, you really start to get a good picture of what this is all about. And especially when you read it in conjunction with the preamble. And what that what the preamble is, is basically a, a, uh, a statement saying, hey, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union, believe in this, 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 and this. We need to do this, this, and this, you know. So you have this uh, established, um, you know, uh, sorry, but uh, provide for the common defense is one of those things. And uh, the purpose of all these things is to secure the blessings of liberty. So when you provide for the common defense, what does that mean? Well, if you read article, I think it's article one, section nine, clause 12, I believe it is, uh, or article one, section eight, clause 12, one of those, it talks about um, that the Congress shall have the power to raise and support armies, but no appropriation for such use shall be longer than a period of two years. So Congress has the power to raise and support armies, but they have to reappropriate funds for it every two years. But what happens if you have a Congress that decides, hey, we don't think we need an army anymore. Um, let's not appropriate any more money toward it. Well, then you would have no standing army at that point. So then who would be responsible for, for um, mm -hmm. providing for the common defense? Mm -hmm. Well, that would be your militia, militia units all over the country. You'd have uh, every state has its own militia. And every state has its own militia. And every state has its own, um, its own security um, profile, so to speak. Yeah, southern states or border states to have to secure the border. So that security profile would be different than an inland uh, state, like, uh, like um, you know, Idaho or something like that. So you'd have, that'd be much bigger. That's, those states would have to deal with their security much different than other, those other states. Um, other states might be wrought with um, hurricanes and natural disasters. So those states would be have their militias trained to deal with those sort of threats. So every state, um, you know, exercised in this principle known as subsidiarity, uh, would would adopt its own security protocols in order to accommodate their specific types of threats. And when you don't have a standing army, then the militia is the one who is responsible for that um, uh, that security. And they're the ones responsible to come for the common defense. And then there's the not so common defense, which is uh, full blown invasions from other countries, you know, like World War II, bombing Fort Harbor, things like that. That would not be a common defense sort of situation that I would, I could imagine. That's um, much more of a military response. Uh, but, um, but for the most part, you got um, uh, that's basically the, the, the distinction between the two. And 
which then tells you that the militias are actually very, very important and necessary, hence the necessary part of the uh, Second Amendment. You know, there's another misconception that's happening right now. I think it's pretty obvious between yourself and I, um, but it, it's totally misconstrued and, and reflects on the Second Amendment is that with the latest spake of mass shootings that we've been having um, mm -hmm. regarding even the Uvalde mass shooting, the, the, uh, the argument against the Second Amendment is that well, the founding fathers couldn't have imagined an AR-15 uh, in this day and age. Yet the Constitution is quite clear in that as long as, say, the military has weapons, the citizenry should have weapons just, in, you know, if, because they saw that if there was too much power to the government that they could use the military against its citizens, something that's not really a foregone conclusion when you look at like say what we did to Iraq, for example, uh, we, 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 we invaded Iraq on a, on a lie, basically, that uh, Al Qaeda was involved with procuring chemical and biological weapons. And we knew it was a lie. And yet we went to the United Nations Security Council. We basically got the authorization to invade. And in 2003, we did. And one million people. And that's a, a relatively uh, agreeable number through like Amnesty International Human Rights Watch. But we're over a million people, a million, okay? Is it, I mean, it, this is a huge problem because what they're doing now is saying, well, the citizens shouldn't be allowed to have these guns that the military and police use. But the constitution is basically saying as long as they have these weapons, they have far worse, the public should have these. Is that, does that sound reasonable or in a- Well, it uh, was funny. If you, if you read it carefully, yes, that is one of the purposes of the second amendment, but also- you have to read uh, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15. It says that Congress shall call forth part of the militia to do three things. That's uh, execute the laws of the Union, which is a police function, uh, to uh, suppress insurrections, which is another police function, and to repel invasions, which is a military function. So how is the Congress supposed to call forth the militia that's been disarmed? How are they supposed to exercise that power? Can you, and not only that, but Clause 16 requires that the Congress organize, arm, and discipline the militia, reserving to the states the appointment of the officers and, and, um, and training the militia based on the discipline prescribed by Congress. So here we have a requirement that the Congress is required to arm the militia for the purposes of carrying out the three powers enumerated in Clause 15. So if, a part of the, if one of those powers is to repel invasions, then wouldn't it be logical that uh, you arm the citizenry with a weapon system suitable to carry out those provisions? And in today's society, that would require a uh, military-style assault weapon. So Congress has a mandate to actually arm us with assault weapons rather than disarm us from, uh, from every any gun. Just you know, let me follow up on that as well, is that... Um, because I, I could see a problem in the future here is that uh, first it's the IR-15, then it's another weapon that is, you know, maybe even less sure. deadlier until you become a nation as barely to defend itself. If that day were to ever come, that the That's government correct. would would use its military, but then there would be a problem. So if I wanted to play devil's advocate Ed, and say that, because you, you actually mentioned this one before, it got me thinking uh, regarding say, you know, would all military actually go against, you know, and enforce the will of the people? You would have, you know, like they would be going against its own, its own citizenry. But at the same time, we do have to, I guess, legally defend ourselves if that day would ever come. Uh, is that a foreseeable, rational uh, future? Do you see that actually happening? I see it happening only with respect to um, sort of a martial law situation. That's been very, very um, mm. Mm. subtle, um, very subtle encroachments, um, and the military kind of just kind of goes along with it, which happened in Hurricane Hurricane Katrina. Right. You had the National Guard going door to door confiscating people's guns, mm. and the National Guard was doing it. Now, that's tyrannical as you get. You can't do that. Um, the, in fact, it should have been the government's job to actually ensure that everybody was able to defend themselves because you have so much looting and all kinds of other criminal activity going on at that time. So you have, um, it's, it's not, 
it's not the government's job to protect us. It is our civic duty to defend ourselves. And ultimately, all political power resides in the resides in the people. So, and even Mao, <laughs> Mao, to, um, Mao from Chairman Mao of China, once said that all political power comes from the barrel of a gun. So, mm. if all political power is inherent in the people, and all political power is uh, comes from the barrel of a gun, would it not be logical to conclude that the people should be the ones who have those guns? True. Right. Right. Uh, I don't like quoting Mao, but I think he's right there. Right. No. Well, I mean, every tyrant has its uh, one. Was was it a broken clock? Is right twice a day. That's, that's uh, right. But and it also it also goes along with the uh, power of the sword aspect of political philosophy. So what? You have what to have is, the ability to wield the power of the sword. What what is the power of the sword? By or, the way, you have to you have the ability to to effectuate political will. Right. What you is the to, power of the to, sword? Uh, the ability to be able to enforce law, to defend oneself, to mm-hmm. to wield the power necessary to um, to ensure that you maintain your maintain your sovereignty, and, on a national level or individual level. Right, and you and obviously you disagree with the branch of government that we have now is basically not executing to the uh, honest ability to the people itself. Do you believe that all function of the government is corrupt? I believe it's corrupt to the core. Um, I can't. In fact, there's no. I mean, from a power of the first perspective, there's no way they can actually do anything without it being corrupt. It's impossible because the, the monetary powers have been completely corrupted. So from that, you can't have any sort of sense of, uh, of, of uh, governmental righteousness, so to speak. Right, because this plays right into it, right? The Federal Reserve. Because right, exactly. as long as the Federal Reserve exists, uh, corruption has to exist, by, I think, by default. Um, every dollar that's well, printed... As long, yeah, as, well, as long as, as long as they're printing uh, bills of credit and calling it dollars, and uh, you know, as long as they maintain the theft of our gold from 1933 and don't provide us with real constitutional sound money, then yeah, it's, it's corrupt. Well, you knew exactly where I was going to, because I was just going to say, as long as every dollar is printed, there's always, uh, there's a tax on it. They're um, not even dollars. Right. At this that's point. A, that's right? how bad it is. Yeah. That's how they're, bad they're, it is. They're bills of credit. They're not dollars. The dollar is a silver coin containing 371.25 grains of pure silver. And we so, haven't had those forever. Right. So my, my next question for you would be like, how much of a massive influence for, uh, regarding the Federal Reserve is it toward impending or impeding to the, uh, the executive, the judicial and the um, legislative branch of government? Well, it's, an inc- it's, it's I mean, to the if you were put on a scale of one to 10, I would say it's 15, um, 15 being the uh, most in, in, right. in, encroaching. Um, because we, they got rid of the militia structures. They were successful in that. And without that, there's no way for the people to execute the laws of the union, the constitution being one of those laws that they're required to, to, uh, to uh, execute. So how, is the, how are the people supposed to make sure that our government is following the constitution when it doesn't have the means necessary to do it? And... You, you still believe that the only way to get actual justice for, say, September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks or any other criminal incident which involved the state or federal involvement level would come if we actually had a constitutional militia? Would that be a fair assumption? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, so like when the 9-11 truth movement that we're basically like at odds with because they actually believe that they can open up to say a new investigation. I mean, we've heard that ad nauseum. So when, when you talk about a new investigation, like by who, right? By who? Um, would it, it can't be anyone involved with federal government because that's exactly who we're trying to get more information from. And they're not giving it to us. So I mean, like- It's the old, it's the old Fox Guardian house, you know? It's like, it's just common sense. Yeah, so like if I pose that question to you, if it can't be a constitutional militia, if it can't be the federal government, who would do the inquiry for the 9-11, uh, the new investigation? Well, that's a good question. It would have to be uh, some, some governmentally sanctioned body <laughs> right. that uh, would do, not, do nothing more than 
uh, continue on with the cover-up. Right, exactly. Unless, exactly. unless, unless you, unless the Congress becomes so far removed from that other Congress that started the problem. But as you can see, many of the people who are in office were in office during September 11th. Mm -hmm. So we don't have this political will to vote people out uh, and get new flesh, fresh blood in. That is sane, anyway. <laughs> right, that's sane. So, but but and this is such a conundrum for the truth movement. It's just. It, it, like, it is I, a very serious conundrum. Right. It's just because it, they, you know, they, they have one, at one point, they want to have like this new investigation, but they mm -hmm. can't have it. And so when you brought this idea of the constitutional militia, I'd never heard of it before. And now I'm like really interested in it because I, at first, like knew nothing about the constitutional militia. When I read more about it, watch, uh, like for the last two days, I've been watching Edward Vieira and I'm like, wow, you know, like, how is this guy not a household new, uh, name? Um, he's not a, like a crackpot of any sorts. He's no. white. He's very respected, even in any circles. Um, his books are highly recommended. It's like four and a half to five stars. Every single one of them. Yeah, you just can't find any negative. Nothing. There's nothing negative. Um, and there's no like. Except you know, like when it comes to like certain 9-11 fringe truthers, there's nothing on the opposite spectrum in argument against Dr. Vieira. And so that's what I look for. I try to look for you know, like, there are any criticisms, any harsh criticism or any slight ones, and there's nothing. So that means- There's silence, some, absolute there's silence. silence. Right, there's yeah, silence. That's what you get. It's like, they don't say anything for, don't right. say anything against, but they just like, that's, that it's almost like that's way beyond- are my even ability to confront, you know? Right, so it's, uh, which really, it, it really interests me. Like, uh, all, right, all right, this guy, basically, you could just look up to what certain areas he says, and basically it's all right there. In the, he's reading for the Constitution. I mean, he's, right. a, he's a brilliant mind that he can remember all the clauses and articles uh, that are in it. But at the same time, why do you think Dr. Vera is not given his do is it because of the obvious that they don't want a public well he's a, he's actually listed in the uh in the southern poverty law center list of quacks which is absolutely is he, is he really hysterical I, yes i did it's not hysterical know to me I, I don't know what the hell i mean i'm surprised i'm not on that list personally I mean, i'd be <laughs> it'd be actually a badge of honor right. personally but uh right. uh yeah it's like i it's absolutely mind-blowing that he's on that list i don't know what the hell those guys are thinking but um, yeah, it's an attempt to marginalize them. Um, but it, you can't marginalize the guy because it's just you know it's like it's factual. You know, it's like how do you? No, there hasn't been anybody else that I've been able to find that has written as extensively on these subjects as he has. I mean, you're talking decades of research. Um, he's working on another book right now, um, and it's uh. I think I last I heard he had like nine bankers boxes of research material to go through. Lord. And it's going to be another big tomb of a book. It's going to be dealing with the what happened, I think, uh, during the, transmogri the transmogrification of uh, what happened with the militia and how it got disbanded and what, how the National Guard got thrown in there, which is not a militia at all, by the way. Um, that's what the states will today claim is that, oh, we have a National Guard. That's, that's our modern day militia. It's like, well, no, it's not. Even the United States Senate has acknowledged that. And the guy who wrote the Dick Act of 1903, hmm. which created the National Guard, acknowledged that it's not the militia. So this idea, so that that's kind of like what has to happen with respect to getting the militias revitalized because all these states have a misunderstanding about what their uh, role is regarding, what the National Guard's role is with, with hmm. regards to their state. Uh, they all think that's the militia. And if you can get them to look at what the Senate has said and what the actual authors of the bill has said, then you hopefully you get them to acknowledge that, oh, yeah, they're right. This is not the militia. Then it creates a vacuum that has to be constitutionally fulfilled. And that opens the door for being able to revitalize it. Right, right. That's exactly what we need. So in other words, we're facing currently American people. So we're, we're facing a conundrum of our own is that if we ever really need to find out about certain truths, we would need a constitutional militia and not a, an institution of federal government because who's, who's hiding the information? The federal government. That's right. Well, the constitutional right. militia would be run by the people 
and not by yeah, a select they're, group. They, yeah, they're state institutions. Again, remember the state. They're state institutions enacted by state statute that must exist in perpetuity, and they make up the body, the, the composition of which is the, the whole body of the people. So you generally have um, this. There's and back in the day, there were various various states had different age requirements. Like you had Massachusetts, for example was um, if you were age 15 to 55, then you would uh, be required to participate in your militia duty. Um, if you were at the age of 16 to 65, which most states um, actually is the age requirement, you would be participate with an added age group to participate in your militia duty. Um, the reason for the age requirement is because you have 16 years of age, which is a question of maturity, and you have the, uh, the higher uh, age bracket, which is 55 65 which is a question of senality hmm. so you so if you so it's essentially looking at all able body males and females in the country and um and then they would be the one to participate in that militia duty just like jury duty it's no different you know that's the civic duty you're, you're required to participate because that's the cost it takes to maintain your freedom and uh, if you don't participate you're going to lose it so according to the Constitution, it had designated the militia of the several states to enact the laws of the Union. Instead, to execute the laws. Right, to execute the laws of the Union. Instead, right. we have the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, would you consider this entity unconstitutional? Uh, in that function, yes. In that function. Absolutely. They would be, they would be, they would be constitutional in, this, in the sense that um, you know, they could be they can be used to help with investigative services, for example. Uh, maybe they maintain a database of terrorists and things like that. Maybe they maintain, uh, uh, you know, lab uh, lab facilities to f- help facilitate the uh, the ability for the various militia structures to uh, to conduct investigations and to um, uh, to uh, to enforce the law. Right, and we, and by the way, we have like. Many- by the way, it'd be grand. It'd be more grand juries doing those investigations. You would have um, uh, the way this works. Just so everybody understands is that you know these militias are are broken down into various committees, mm-hmm. um, and the committees can range from like the committee of correspondence, which was uh, a popular one, and that was the one responsible for communications between the the militia units and and the various uh, you know, uh, representatives. And then you had, uh, and then and that's an important one, by the way, because because how else would I mean? Here, let me lay it out for you this way. You know, we the Declaration of Independence talks about. I'm going to go on a little on a little tangent here, but the Declaration of Independence talks about how you know the people have a right and a duty to to overthrow or to resist, renew, and restore the uh, the government if it becomes tyrannical. Mm. It says it, can, it should not be doing this for light and transient causes. It's a, you know when the, when the government becomes uh, despotic, it is not only your right but it is your duty to overthrow such government and install new governments for future security. That's what the Declaration of Independence talks about, and it made the case that it was doing just that because, uh, with respect to the King of England. So they're laying out a foundation. They're saying, look, when your government becomes tyrannical, you have the duty to remove it. Or change it, or do whatever you got to do, because nobody has a legal duty to live under tyranny. Right. It's an individual. It's an individual issue, you know, because any individual can be tyrannized, and any group can be tyrannized, including the entire body of a citizen. So, with that in mind, nobody bothers to ask the question. Okay, how do you how how do you put that into work? How do you put that into play? What happens when the government does become despotic and become tyrannical? What is the proper mechanism that's supposed to be used to, to remove it and, and install some new government legally without any sort of, um, with, with all immunities associated with prosecution, with all the rights, powers, privileges, and immunities that are associated with it? How do the people exercise that duty? Nobody asks that question. And it's the most important question to be asked because if you if you're are you supposed to get like a, a cell phone update for a new government update, you know it's like 
is it like uh, somebody's supposed to, you're supposed to make an 800 number, call the 800 number, say, hey, um, is the government become tyrannical enough yet? <laughs> you know, who do you report to? How do you, right. how do you put this into play? And, and so without a militia structure, there's no organizational structure that has the rights, powers, privileges, and immunities to do it. However, because of those militia structures are state institutions uh, enacted by state statute, they're the ones who have that authority. Right. But when you remove that militia structure, then you remove the mechanism that gives the people to exercise that authority, which is, is what ends up happening by default is that people act on their own behalf or through factions or movements or groups that don't have the authority to act. So they're running around trying to get support from the people, but there's no way to count how many people you have. Do you have 51%? If you, if you get 51% of the people, does that legally justify the overthrow of the government? Right. And then how do you actually exercise that, 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 uh, that approval rating? You know, how do you, what do you do? Go knock on the president's door and the Congress's door and say, hey, you got to go. You know, so this is a very interesting question. Um, that needs to be answered, but I think the answer is through your militia structures. And once they, and then, and then through, when, and then what happens is, is if, let's say, for example, a state, um, you know, they muster their militia and the government decides, say, hey, we're going to call forth a part of the militia to execute a particular law. But that particular law is seen by the eyes of the people to be tyrannical or unconstitutional or unjust. Do the people at that point through the militia have the right and duty to not enforce that law? Well, yeah, because they have to enforce the Constitution as well. So then who does the Congress or the government have to enforce their will on the militia in order to force them to execute the law? Well, they don't have anyone. Right. The, the militia is the final say. They're the say. They're it. So when the people decide, hey, this law is unconstitutional, our, our militia company had a vote. We discussed it. We looked at all the pros and cons and determined that this law is not valid. They're asking us to execute. Therefore, we are not going, we're going to, we're going to um, um, exercise our right of legal notification, so to speak. So then what happens is that information gets transferred all throughout the various militia companies throughout all the states. And the governors then convene their their legislature, and then they take a vote on whether or not to enforce that federal law. And at that point, the people have spoken. That's how you know when the people have truly spoken, and the representative should be listened, because they're acting on behalf from the militia as an organized institution, not as people as individuals running around trying to uh, make their voice heard because no, no representative has any duty to listen to that because there's no way to ascertain whether they're speaking on behalf of the people or not. And yet, and yet the people continually put faith in the voting system and, and act as like their voice is being heard. And That's right. I, th and, and, this, and this is a problem because I'm, I'm like a non, I, I always preach to people, you know, they shouldn't vote because it's un-American because your voice really isn't being heard. None of your problems. In fact, the problems tend to get worse in certain aspects. Um, I mean, you know, how, you know, but yet the system keeps repeating itself every quarterly, every four years. Well, that's the, that's the, uh, the, 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 another conundrum because what happens is that everyone says, well, if you want to change the system, you got to vote, 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 everybody right, vote. Right, right, right. But the problem is that what happened, our country is designed to protect us on an individual rights level, not on a group level, majority rule level. So if I'm being tyrannized on an individual level, how do I have my, how do I get justice? How do, how do I get hurt? Because I have a, there's a duty on behalf of the citizens of this country to protect my individual freedom. And when you go and vote and think that's the solution, what you're doing is you're saying 51% of the people uh, have made, have, 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 uh, have spoken, and therefore your rights as an individual no longer matter. The voting system is designed to, to spread the will of the majority, not to handle individual tyranny.
Right, but but right because you you talk about the the conundrum that we're facing, and by the way, we're facing multiple. Um, yeah. But one of them is this general misunderstanding or general neglect of what is the founding document of this country, and that's the Constitution itself. And at the other hand, the very institution that we helped shape and created over the last two hundred years has been actually abusing that document. And mm-hmm. while also abusing the document, um, having uh, the public completely unaware of what the document actually entails. And maybe this is the reason why we don't get to hear. And, and, the and, they, t- and they took away the mechanism by which to actually enforce it. Okay, do you elaborate? That's the, uh, well, that's the whole thing. The militia is no longer there. So oh, how, okay. are we supposed right. to, how are we supposed to enforce the uh, Constitution at that point? We're going to let the government do it? Right. Good luck right. with that. Right. Good luck. We've with seen that. how good a job they've done. Sure. Is this? I know this is quite brazen to say, but do you think in our lifetime, uh, within say the next twenty years, that we will see, like, say the Second Amendment actually repealed? I know. Even if they repealed it, it wouldn't change anything because the Second Amendment doesn't actually do anything if you read it carefully. Because what it says is that a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. So if there's an acknowledgement saying founders are going, hey, you know this thing, the militia? Well, it's necessary to security of a free state. It's not, de- it's not saying that the Second Amendment is declaring it to be necessary for the security of a free state. It's just acknowledging that already existing fact. And then the next uh, 13 words are, or 14 words, are um, the right of the people to keep their arms should not be infringed. Not the right of the individual to keep their arms, it's the right of the people. So it's talking about that whole body politic again, right? The people. So shall not be infringed. So, you know, here, so here's a, so here's a situation where even if you took away that Second Amendment, you still have Article 1, Section 8, Clause 16, it requires the Congress to, or, to arm the people. So not only, so you're covered in three different ways really there in the constitution with respect to gun laws. And here's the other, so here's the other dilemma that states have which, and what we're seeing is the states are passing gun laws that to ban them. Mm, right. Well, if you, if, you have, if you have a Congress that's sitting there, it says right there in black and white that they're required to arm the militia and the, the militia is the whole body of the people, then how can the state make a law banning those same firearms? What happens when the Congress calls forth the militia to go execute the law to repel an invasion and they show up, they show up and they're like, Congress, like, hey, where's your guns? Oh, sorry, my state just uh, passed law to ban them. Well, see, it doesn't work that way. Right. It's a violation of the supremacy clause. So, so the states have no power whatsoever to pass gun ban laws. Uh, none whatsoever. Because theoretically, every gun can be a gun, a gun of war. And that's what's protected. And exactly. the Miller versus the United States actually support actually uh, talked about that in the Supreme Court ruling um, back back in uh, I think it was nineteen the nineteen thirties maybe nineteen I can't remember what year it was I might be getting confused with another case but it's Miller versus U.S. but that was a case dealing with a uh, um, shot off a shot off shotgun and the court ruled that because it was not a a, a firearm that is uh, uh, required for the proficiency and efficacy of the militia, it does, is not protected by the Second Amendment. However, anybody could have made a simple argument that sawed-off shotguns are used in the military. So, uh, so the Supreme Court is saying, hey, unless, you're, unless you have a weapon of war, a, you know, air, a you know, M16 rifle, a, you know, a M60 machine gun, something like that, then it's not protected by the Second Amendment. That's what the Supreme Court ruled. The irony is that in Heller versus the D.C. decision, uh, that guy was arguing his individual right to keep their arms and therefore will lose, uh, even though the court ruled that you do have an individual right to keep their arms, but also ruled that um, you know, the, the, the state can decide what is a um, uh, strange or unusual type of weapon. So they can ban those for a, a weapon not in common use. 
So what they do, the state then bans the gun, and then all the lawful gun owners turn in their guns, and then time goes by, and then it becomes a weapon not in common use because they just banned the darn thing. So then it goes to the court, and the court sees it as a weapon of not in common use. Well, the reason why is because they banned it. So it's a vicious cycle. It's ridiculous. Exactly. So the Supreme Court, the Heller decision, really, it was really a flawed decision. I don't like it at all. But regardless, if you argue, if you're arguing your individual right to keep their arms, the court is going to um, uh, apply the Heller case. If you go into court and argue your individual, your uh, civic duty to keep their arms with respect to your service in the militia, then the proper case to apply is the Miller decision. So it depends on how you argue it. Right. What case are going to apply? I, this leads right into my next question beautifully, is that there is an argument about the federal regulation of gun purchases which isn't defined in the Constitution. The taxing power of Congress stated in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1, and it says, quote, Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States, end quote. So by this clause alone, why is there a federal regulation on certain guns? Uh, because um, Congress isn't following the Constitution. Right, exactly. Simple as that. <laughs> there is no other way around it. And not only that, but based, think about it. If, you're, if Congress is required to arm the militia and the people are part of the militia, then that means you are required to have a firearm based on Congressman's regulation. Not regulation to disarm, but regulation to arm. The Congress is limited in its power, and it's given the power to arm the population, not disarm them. So any law that is passed that moves in the direction of disarmament is inherently unconstitutional and in violation of that Clause 16. Not just that, but if you were, if that is the case, that the government is required to arm you for your to in order to perform the civic duty of this of the governmental function called militia service. Then that malicious that that governmental function um, immunizes yourself from the tax associated with the purchase or sale of firearm. So the sale, purchase and sale of firearms cannot be taxed because you're exercising a governmental function. So, it, in essence, if what I'm understanding here is that according to what has been happening for several decades, even over a century and a half is that the federal government has taken away the rights of the people and mandated that right to federal institutions, which are slowly eroding the Constitution. Correct. Is that what's happening right now? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a big part of what's happening, yeah. And but they, what, well, I'll tell you how it started. That's an interesting story. It started back in uh, 1867 uh, when right after the Civil War, and what happened was the southern states, all the southern states had their own militias, right? And these militias fought against the Union because of the Confederacy, et cetera. Now, it was acknowledged by Lincoln that these state, southern state governments, the rebellion, the rebellious governments were not, in fact, uh, seceded from the Union. They were still acknowledged as being legally uh, connected to the union and being part of the union, uh, even though the southern states were declaring their secession. It was not legally recognized by the North. Now, they also uh, understood that the, the, uh, all the rights, powers, privileges, and immunities associated with their governmental institutions of those southern states were still intact. And anything that those southern states did as a government that was legally legitimate uh, and within their state constitutions and the federal constitution was still legally legitimate operation of government, even though they're still at war with the North. Uh, it was uh, those acts that were outside of the bounds of the constitution that were considered uh, null and void or uh, inapplicable. So when the war ended in 1865, the Congress, uh, the Southern states didn't have any representation in Congress. They still had governments within their states, but not any represent, no senators, no congressmen in the United States Congress. In 1865, when the war ended, there was a proposal known as the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. It was sent to all the Southern states that were in rebellion. 
all those southern states voted on that amendment, except for one, I believe. I think it was, I think it might have been Tennessee or Mississippi, one of those two. Regardless, it passed. And the acknowledging in 1865 that the southern states were, in fact, performing legitimate uh, governmental functions of, uh, and, uh, of uh, ratifying amendments to the Constitution. And it was also acknowledged in 1865 when the war ended that the Southern states were no longer in rebellion through the presidential proclamation and said that they were still an integral part of the Union. It was not a war of subjugation, not a war of conquest, uh, and that they were still considered part of the Union with all rights uh, associated with such. This was in 1865. Fast forward 1867, two years later, they proposed, Congress proposed the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. And uh, the Southern states were given this amendment to ratify. Southern states decided not to ratify the amendment. They didn't like it. Hmm. At that point, the United States Congress proposed a law called the uh, Reconstruction Acts, the first of five, I think it's the first of five or four. Um, in, that, in the very first section of that Reconstruction Act, it said that the government was going to um, create five military districts and send in um, military officials to those southern states, remove their lawfully elected and lawfully performing governments, install provisional governments at gunpoint, remove them by force if necessary. They're going to install provisional governments in the military districts, claiming and arguing that they were still in rebellion, et cetera, et cetera even though in 1865 they weren't. Then they uh, would not allow them to have any more representation in Congress until they ratified the 14th Amendment. Mm. This is a, one of the most egregious and most gross violations of our Constitution that's ever in history uh, because it was actually literally trying to force a state government to ratify the amendment at gunpoint under duress. And as far as I'm concerned, all those states who ratified it under those conditions, that those votes are nullified uh, and null and void. They, they are not, they should not have any force or effect. Therefore, this 14th Amendment to the Constitution is not lawfully ratified, in my opinion. Hmm. With, uh, on top of that, they also passed on the same day a law called the, uh, Nas uh, the National, um, uh, National Defense Authorization Act, or Army Appropriations Act, excuse me, the Army Appropriations Act. In Section Six, I believe of that Act, it said that the all the all the militias within those states that did not ratify the Fourteenth Amendment are hereby disbanded until approved furthermore by Congress. This was another egregious violation of the Constitution because those are state institutions; they are not enacted by they're not an uh, act of Congress. They cannot be removed by Congress. It's no more than than the federal Congress can uh, remove this. You know the. Uh, Secretary of State of California's office. You know, it's, these are state institutions. So that was an unconstitutional act. So that was the first time in the first uh, sort of series of events that took place where the militias of the several states were literally disbanded and, and forcefully removed from the various state governments. And then in 1903, the Dick Act was passed, and that was the one that created the National Guard. And uh, in an attempt to get to uh, create more imperialism and spread the military throughout the world, they needed more people. But because most of the people were involved in their state militias, they needed to disband the state militias in order to get people to engage in the National Guard. The National Guard then became a uh, adjunct to the standing army, driving their authority under Article One, Section Ten, Clause Three, and then then that, and that entity was allowed to be uh, be to uh, to uh, uh, to go overseas which the militia was not allowed to do. So but to this day, there's a confusion with respect to the National Guard and the militia uh, with, uh, where people believe that the National Guard is the modern state militia, but it is not. It is nothing more than an adjunct to the standing army, which drives the authority under Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, which gives the Congress the power to give states permission to raise and support armies in times of peace, and with the Senate Congress. And that's exactly what they did with the Dick Act. Very appropriately titled the Dick Act, by the way. Sure. <laughs> and fast forward to even, uh, you know, I just did a video about this yesterday when I did a, a live video on YouTube about 
the uh, the White House counsel's uh, immediate response to the September 11th attacks was to basically circumvent the Geneva Convention afforded to foreign prisoners of war who are labeled uh, terrorists. And that labeling was usually done by the Department of Justice, but the, the but under Cheney, this is basically Cheney's idea, Cheney used his own lawyer, David Addington, as well as White House counsels, John Yu and Alberto Gonzalez. And what they did was basically, uh, because the Geneva Convention was basically vague in certain definitions, they basically circumvented the convention and said that those who are deemed uh, terrorists are no longer going to be going through the Department of Justice, but instead now to the president himself. So in other words, the president could see you as basically a terrorist or conspiring in terrorism. You are no longer the rights afforded to the Geneva Convention. And what happens is, is they basically said that uh, they wanted to create new laws, indefinite detention, the rent, and use the rendition program, uh, which was created under the Clinton administration. And after 9-11, you know, they, it's, I mean, the rendition program still is basically classified, but you could see where this was happening. I mean, there's the rights of even uh, people who are deemed and not even convicted yet, or, you know, they're just charged, they're just labeled terrorists. And we have one such prisoner in Guantanamo right now, and that's something you're very familiar with Guantanamo, is Abu Zubaydah. And Abu Zubaydah is the only person in Guantanamo not charged with anything, but he's an he can be held indefinitely because of the legislature created by the Bush administration regarding foreign nationals who are labeled terrorists. And not only that, we had the Patriot Act. Uh, there's, a, there's a great saying that says, uh, to kill a dog, all one must do is call it mad. <laughs> right. That's it. And basically, you can put them down. Right. You know, yeah. right, you know, one of my final questions to you, Ed, is that, and this is something that you had a very vested interest in, and I'd like to get your thoughts on it, is that right now there's a current 9-11 Truth Advocate Group that's fighting to have the right to petition, to have the courts hear certain evidence. And this is the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. And that the evidence which contradicts certain narratives concerning about how the World Trade Centers collapsed on 9-11. And like I said, you have a vested interest in this. Tell us more yes. about why. Um, I was one of those involved in the uh, right to petition lawsuit back in 2000, mid 2000s. And um, it went to the US Supreme Court. They refused to hear the case. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh, when he was a, 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 the, uh, a district court judge in DC circuit, uh, was the one who rendered the final decision on that case. Um, and it's still an open sort of question, uh, the way the case was uh, concluded. Um, we were really hoping that he would actually hear it uh, when it went to the Supreme Court. I don't, I don't recall if he was, I don't think he was uh, on the court at the time um, when it went, uh, when it was decided. But um, he did acknowledge that it needed to be addressed at some point in the future, but he didn't want it to be done in his court. So um, the right to petition question is very important because it goes to the heart of uh, more government accountability, uh, where if uh, the people's right to, to petition the government for redress of grievance uh, legitimately, um, can't abuse that power of nonsense, I guess you could say, um, does the government have a, a duty to respond to the petitions? And I believe they do uh, for numerous reasons. And then the next question would be, the one we raised is, if the government doesn't respond to the question is, do the people have a right to retain their money until they do, thereby procru uh, uh, procuring the uh, um, you know, accountability in the most peaceful manner rather than going to uh, arms and trying to force it that way, which of course we have no mechanism by which to do. So we're stuck there anyway. Right. But um, so the court came back and said, uh, basically the government doesn't have, you have a right to, petition the government for redress of grievance, but the government doesn't have to answer you. And through that non-answer of government, then the third question, um, no, you don't have to, you, you, you can't hold your money until they answer. So uh, that's now considered a privileged position by many of the tax courts and things like that, which is devastatingly uh, sad to me, but it's, uh, it's, 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 not, it's not right. It's not a, it's not a good good situation with respect to that right because it's basically a right with no remedy and no enforceability and the uh 
current litigation right now with the lawyers committee um, is dealing with that very question in the court, you know, only in a different way and with a different subject matter. And um, just to get your opinion on this, do you think they'll be successful? No. I hope they are, but no. Is there any particular reason why? Um, well, let's say the courts come down with a decision against them. What are they going to do? Where's the mechanism right, to enforce right, it? Right, exactly. Okay. It's gone. There's nothing anybody can do anymore. Until that militia is revitalized, they, they can't initiate any impeach procedures for that judge. Right. And this was the whole concept of today's talk, right? Is because we would need an independent body of the people by the people, and that would be the constitutional militia. That's correct. And it's not something, this is also why I wanted to do this interview with you, because you got me very interested in this subject. And it, you know, I knew nothing about this. You know, I, I don't know much of anything. Don't. Yeah. And when it was brought to my attention, you know, um, even though my focus is September 11, 2001, I did, you know, try and give this some attention uh, regarding my studies in it. And it, I'm less than layman at this point, but I'm learning more about it. And it's not something like fringe. This is not a fringe concept. It's not a fringe idea. And what really interests me is that this is actually lawfully mandated by the Constitution. That's right. It's in there all over the place. The militia is mentioned probably more times than, than Congress has mentioned, states are mentioned. It's mentioned at least like five times, if I remember right. And it's the only institution necessary to security a free state. Yet you mention it and you get blackballed and, uh, you know, uh, you're called a, you know, a whack job mm. just by mentioning the name. But it's a constitutional term. So what are they bitching about? Well, it's the same as conspiracy theorists, right? I mean, right. you know, we're, we're basically called shills and, you know, you were called an Israeli shill by Chris Dorsey. Mm -hmm. And I consider that a badge of honor coming from him. Oh, uh, other than, <laughs> <laughs> we've had, for those who don't know, um, Chris Dorsey actually uh, has an infamous, actually, interview with Ryan Dawson that went on two hours. And it was basically just Chris Dorsey yelling about how everybody is a shill Everybody's good. Ryan man. lasted two hours. Yeah, two. It was a two-hour talk. I couldn't believe wow. it. Wow. I said I, wow. I lasted like I lasted ten minutes. I think ten minutes. Was, right. I said yeah. I told Ryan Dawson too. I said you have the patience of a saint. That was <laughs> uh, something else. Yeah. But Ed, any final thoughts about this subject? And um, what would you say to the listeners today, the com public who have like no clue, like myself, regarding this important topic of the constitutional issue? I would say start with baby steps, you know, um, start with understanding that the National Guard is not your state militia, number one. Um, and then once you realize that, then ask yourself, okay, if the National Guard is the state militia, and that means every state in this country. Oh, by the way, this also includes state defense forces, mm. because those are reserve units for this National Guard units. And everyone else falls under this un unorganized militia category, which is unconstitutional as well. So... It's, so it's very, well, this is important. This is one of the tricks they pulled, okay? When they passed that Dick Act in 1903, what the language said was, the militia of the United States shall consist of, you know, every able-bodied male and female between the ages of 17 and 45 and intended in, with the intention of becoming a citizen of the United States, a member of the National Guard, et cetera, et cetera. If you read the first line, it says, the militia of the United States shall consist of. Okay, that right there tells you everything you need to know. There is no such thing as a militia of the United States. Congress doesn't have the power to create its own militia. They only have the power to create standing to create and support armies. That's it. And militia and armies are not the same thing. And we know this because Article 2, Section 2, Clause 1, which says that uh, the president shall be commander-in-chief of the Army, Navy, and of the militia. So if they're the same thing, the militia will be incorporated within the Army language. You see? Hmm. So... So the, when it said the, United, the militia of the United States shall, be consist, shall consist of, then you know right off the bat that the law is um, not right with respect to, uh, with respect to the, the militia. They're, not, they're unconstitutional as a militia on a federal level, but constitutional as a standing army um, for the states on a, on a uh, constitutional level 
through Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3. So that's where that power comes from. Um, so they're not an actual militia. They are uh, the ability for the states to maintain ships and troops of war in times of peace with the extent of Congress. So that's what that power is all about. So understand that. And then once you figure that out, recognize that those guys running around the woods pretending to be militia are not militia at all. They're simply private groups um, who think they're militia but are really not. And that's how you tell the difference. Is a militia a public institution or a private institution? And if you ask any of these guys, they're going to tell you they're private, which means it's not a militia. Uh, militias are public institutions uh, created by state statute. So once you recognize that the militia is not actually the national, I'm sorry, the National Guard is not the militia, then it creates a vacuum for the militia to be organized within that state uh, because the constitutional mandates, constitution mandates it. So then that's where you actually push toward a um, some sort of legislative proposal or get your, your state rep to acknowledge and recognize that a constitutional um, mandate needs to be fulfilled and that the militia needs to be revitalized in that state. Ed Brotherton, former service member of the Air Force, 9-11 researcher and constitutional historian. Thank you very much for coming on today's show. Thank you. Appreciate it.